And so what does it take to save? It takes pain. It takes realizing that you don't want to do this stupid job, this painful job for the rest of your life. So you need that pain to save. I have a saying that I tell my readers, if the amount of money you're saving each month doesn't hurt, you're not saving enough. It's kind of like if you've ever had braces or you're working out, if you're working out and you know, you lift in those you know, like five pound dumbbells, you feel like you got a good workout. That's not true. You didn't do anything. I mean, you need to feel that pain for that, that muscle to rip and then to build, right? Born in 92 on the block with the sharks, come from a different cloth. Y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo with the Rucker Paw. Now we eating from state to state. We scraped the plate. I put my eggs in the basket, took a leap of faith. I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Matt Labrie here, your host of the top 1% globally ranked podcast, Decoding Success. And on today's episode, we are going to help you fill up your financial bucket. You might be thinking, well, Matt, you're going to hand us some money. Unfortunately, that's not the case, but we are going to deliver a plethora of wisdom. But let me take a couple of steps back. You're listening to this podcast, a podcast, reading any book because you want the most out of your life. We want to fill up all of those buckets, the financial bucket, the career, the business bucket, the health bucket, the spiritual health, mental health, emotional health, physical health, the list goes on, right? That's why you do what you do, and that is why you're here. So with that being said, we're going to shift our focus today to the financial side of things, and there is no one better to help us fill up the financial bucket than our friend, the financial samurai, Sam Dogan himself. Now, Sam is an incredible individual. We share a lot of laughs, and Sam amplifies a lot of his learnings right here on this episode. In fact, Sam spent 13 years in corporate America, and he had a conversation with himself. He said, Sam, I can't do this forever. I don't want to do this forever. This is not what I'm here for. Now, I just want to paint this picture. This episode isn't about whether you should be in corporate America or not. That is not what this episode is about. This episode is all about taking control of your finances, building passive streams of income, building generational wealth. So more specifically, we're going to be diving into hacks that Sam has created to help us save because he saved 50% of his income while living in New York City. Like what? That is mind blowing. You might be saying, well, Matt, what if he made 500000 a million dollars? No, that was not the case. We're diving into the numbers for all the people that are saying that out there. We're going to be diving into investment hacks, when to start, where to start, how to start, what to do if you already started, and we're going to keep building up that ladder. So no matter where you are on your financial level of success, we're diving into everything for you. We're going to be talking about tools that will help you with your finances, mistakes and landmines to avoid that Sam has made. And you want to know what? I'm going to put it out there. I've made a ton of them myself. So we're going to be diving into that. We're also going to be diving into avoiding the financial stress and the financial anxiety that comes with some decision-making processes. There's so much in this episode, and I'm really grateful to have you here because we are seriously going to help you fill up this bucket. And again, unfortunately, it has nothing to do with me handing you any money, but we are handing you a plethora of of wisdom. So with that in mind, I'm going to urge you to share this with someone in your life because I know, I know so many people struggle with finances, whether they show it or not. In fact, the people that don't show it might be the people that need this the most. So I'm going to urge you to make sure that you are sharing this with people in your life, whether that be your coworkers, your friends, your family, someone you pass on the street, airdrop it to them, whatever you got to do. I'm urging you to share this episode with them. And without further ado, we bring to you our friend, the financial samurai himself, Sam Dogan. Sam? Welcome to Decoding Success. I know that we were just chopping it up for a little bit. Excited to amplify your message, your learnings, your experiences, all of that to the people here, our incredible community. So thank you so much for joining us. 
Hey, thanks so much for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. And it's an honor to be here. Of course. Now, I mean, this might be a little bit of a cliche question to kick things off because what I'm about to ask is a part of everyone's life. But I want to start this off with understanding why you wanted to take your finances as seriously as you do and then help other people in the process. Like I said, I get it. Finances are a part of everyone's life. It's important to have them intact. But what was it that came over you or an experience you had that said, you know what, like you need to get, you know, you need to take care of this shit? Well, you know, I, I graduated college in 99 and I started work at 530 in the morning. And it was brutal because I remember going to college and skipping, dropping out of my 8 a.m. class because it was just too early. So getting in at 5.30 a.m. was crazy brutal. And I lasted for about a month until I realized this is just unsustainable hell. And so I just figured, man, I got to figure out a way to save, invest, and get the hell out. And so I finally got the hell out in 2012, 13 years later. And I realized I had stepped on a lot of landmines, financial landmines that I wish someone could have told me, why did you buy that vacation property in 2007? Why did you invest in that stupid stock? At the end of the day, money buys you time. And because I stood on so many landmines, I blew myself up so many times that I lost so much time. And now as a 45-year-old man with two young kids, time is everything. It just like I think about everything in terms of time, in terms of my investment returns, that buys back time. If I lose money, I lose time. So everything I'm hoping, you know, as you get older, you get wiser, hopefully, but you also realize the importance of time. And I just want to teach that so that other people won't have to step on those landmines as well. I love that. I actually want to ask you a question, totally maybe off topic a little bit here, but you went to William and Mary, correct? I did. Did you ever go to the Cheesecake Factory? The Cheesecake Factory? The cheese shop? I've been to the cheese shop. The cheese shop. Yes, Yes. the cheese shop. There we go. The cheese shop is the best. The cheese shop. I had family in Williamsburg, Virginia. Right. So I, I would always go over there, man. That's oh, man. That, I saw that in your bio. I'm like the cheese shop. I don't know why I said the cheesecake factory, but uh, <laughs> the cheese shop, that place is next level, man. I absolutely oh, love long. it. That's so funny. That's awesome. But getting back to the finance, financial side of things, you were talking about the landmines. What were those landmines that you were hitting? In 2007, I bought a vacation property. Okay. So that was like one year before the financial crisis started. And one of the reasons why I bought it was because I was, I was a young gun. I had just gotten promoted. I got my largest bonus ever in finance. And I ended up extrapolating that income for like the next 10 years. Like, oh, I'm here. I made it. I deserve a vacation property. And then of course the financial crisis came and I lost like 35% of my net worth in six months. And I realized... I was dumber than I realized. I had saved, I invested, I diversified, but I still you know, blew myself up. So that was like a key moment where I was just thinking to myself, man, if I was working in finance and so focused on finance and saving and investing, and I still lost so much money, what about the average person who doesn't work in finance? And the reality is a lot of people lost their jobs during that previous financial crisis. And so that was my motivation to change. I started financialsamurai.com in 2009, July 2009, literally at the bottom of the global financial crisis because it motivated me to change. I'd been thinking about the idea for three years. And then finally I said, okay, I could be laid off tomorrow. I've lost a lot of my money. I need to figure out what's next. And so that's that's what happened. So I'm curious, what would you have, or let me rephrase this, what would have made that moment, that experience of you buying the vacation property, a smart move versus you considering it a landmine? Like what would need to be different for it to be a smart move? I think the biggest thing was understanding one, the percentage of the vacation property to my net worth. So the vacation property was like maybe 40 or 50% of my net worth at the time, which was way too high. That's way too much exposure, right? And I took on mortgage debt to buy that property. And also I thought it would be fine because I was thinking, oh, I'm still going to make 
this much money or more money over the next 10 years. But what happened was the income went down because of the financial crisis and my investments went down. So that was step one, not properly assessing the risk factor in buying that property and extrapolating my income. The second thing is timing. If I had bought the vacation property in 2010, 11, 12, I would have a different tune. I'd be like, oh yeah, this is no brainer. I'm enjoying the property and I'm making money. Ah, life is good. I'm a genius. But that's another thing in finance. You never want to confuse your brains with the bull market. You don't want to think you are smart. You always want to be very cautious, analytical, so you don't make these mistakes because they can really set you back a lot of money and a lot of time. Absolutely. Do you still have that vacation property by any chance? So that's the funny thing. Unlike some people who you know decided to foreclose or go bankrupt or whatever, I decided to hold on, kept on paying my mortgage. I got a free loan mod where they lowered the interest rate from 5.75% to 4.25% because I had kept on paying my mortgage. And it's about paid off right now. I mean, it's almost done. It's only like $10,000 left on the mortgage. Wow. And the funny thing was in 2007, I had a dream. I had a dream, you know, I was 30. I was going to, I had a dream that I was going to get married and have kids and I would take them there one day. So it's a two bedroom, two bath property, but the kids didn't come until many, many years later, until 10 years later in 2017. But now, you know, I finally have the two kids and I took my son there last year and he had a great time. And now we have a daughter who's two and a half. And I can envision that dream now. It's coming to a reality, but it took forever to get there, 15 years to get there. Yeah, I get that. And the topic of percentages, you were talking percentages. I read something that you were able to save 50% of your income after taxes. Now, yeah. that's not an easy task whatsoever, especially yeah. in today's day and age when factors of culture and primal needs of wanting to fit in you know, come about, right? And yeah. you know, listen, I'm a millennial, so I guess that's who we're talking to today. You want to drive a certain car. You want yeah. eat at certain places, right? So like, what does that yeah. take, man, to be able to to be able to save like that? Well, you know, so like I said, when I, the first month of work, it was, it was, you know, you're the honeymoon period, you got a new job. This is great. It's working at Goldman Sachs in New York City. I thought I would won the lottery, right? I was, you know, banker, going to make bank money. And their pay was $40,000. I was like, what? Only $40,000 in Manhattan, which was still not a lot in 1999. And so I actually kind of felt poor. So I shacked up with my high school friend in a studio and I think it was like $1,800. So we split it. Because I didn't want to spend more than $1,000 of rent. I just felt stupid because I was working all the time. And so what does it take to save? It takes pain. It takes realizing that you don't want to do this stupid job, this painful job for the rest of your life. So you need that pain to save. I have a saying that I tell my readers, if the amount of money you're saving each month doesn't hurt, you're not saving enough. It's kind of like if you've ever had braces or you're working out, if you're working out and you know, you lifting those <laughs> like five pound dumbbells, you feel like you got a good workout. That's not true. You didn't do anything. I mean, you need to feel that pain for that, that muscle to rip and then to build. Right. And so I knew very early on the first month after work that I could not sustain a lifetime in finance. I would die young, you know, and just be completely miserable. So I came up with structures that I would save as much as possible. And to save 50% would mean, hey, you save 50% of your earnings means one year of savings means you buy one year of freedom. It was the simplest math ever, right? And then also usually, well, I got two paychecks a month, right? Bi-weekly paychecks. So I would just try to save one paycheck every month and then just spend the rest. And that was like the the structure that I went for. And it was hard in the first one or two years, but then 
the income grew and I tried to keep my expenses flat. And so that percentage actually went to like 75, 80% over time. Right. Now, when it comes to being able to quote unquote, buy time with money, and I'm specifically referring to people that have made mistakes financially. When I say people that have made mistakes, I mean me. (laughs) We all make mistakes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm just curious, can your present day in regards to finances make up for the mistakes that you've made in the past in regards to being able to buy time? Or is that time just totally gone? It's, you know, just focus on where you're at right now. You know, time is just always moving, right? So if you didn't make the most of it, you wasted it. Mm. You just have to accept that reality and you got to be in the present and focus on what's next. Be in the present, but also focus on how you can gain back that time. You know, we should learn from our mistakes so we can be more efficient and make less mistakes in the future. And this is something I talk about in my book, Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom. I have a 70-30 decision-making framework. And the idea is that if you believe there's a 70% or greater probability of success or making the right choice, you go for it. Don't wait until you have 100% probability. And I feel that some people need to feel 100% certain to make that choice, to, to make a decision, You know, whether it's asking someone out, getting that job, starting that podcast, starting that blog, whatever it is. And then just be humble knowing that maybe 30% of the time or hopefully less, you'll get it wrong and you'll make some changes and learn better and buy back more time. So let's break that down, Sam. I'm really curious. How do we measure 70% success rate? Like, Let's use an example, starting the blog. Like When you started your blog, your forum, however you want to refer to it as, how did you know that there was a 70% success rate? So back then I didn't know. And it took basically... 13 years for me to formulate this idea and write this book that's coming out in 2022. But I looked at what's the downside. So starting the blog back then in 2009 was, you know, I hired someone from Craigslist, 250 bucks, I hired a designer, 250 bucks. So the downside was $500 and me learning something and spending time to start it, right? That was it. That was the $500 downside. The other downside was someone would find out and I'd get fired. But I mean, I I had freedom of speech. I'm not writing about anything that I was doing my work. And so I felt strongly that there was very little downside and tremendous upside. Now, how to, qu- how to quantify 70%? It's hard to quantify, but the way we practice getting to that 70% magical number is by thinking in probabilities, not absolutes. So mm-hmm. if let's say you like sports. I'm a big fan of the Golden State Warriors, right? So before every game, I will make a prediction. I believe the Warriors will win by... 10 points, whatever it is. And I'll list out reasons why I think they'll win. You know, Wiggins is going to lock down Luka. Steph Curry's going to go for at least 30 points. You know, Kevon Looney's going to get at least 15 rebounds. Okay, this is the reason why the matchups are good. 70% plus probability. I'll bet my wife a dollar that I'll win. She'll be like, no, I don't want to bet you, but okay, I'll force her to bet me a dollar. Boom. At the end of the game, two hours, 45 minutes later, we'll see who wins. You'll know and you'll figure out, okay, these are the reasons why. I thought they'd win. Did they come out? Yes or no? If no, then you know, a little delusion. I need to tweak that a little. So that's just one example, a game. You can think about, like if you watch a dog show contest, which dog is going to win? You can guess that probability. You can have a friend who found a new girlfriend. Ah, they've been dating for two months and he proposes to her. You can figure out probability of how long that marriage will last. The idea is to change the way you're thinking, to think in probabilities and not absolutes. And you'll gradually get a sense. You'll narrow that band from, you know what? I have no freaking idea. That's like a 40%, 70% probability. You'll over time get wiser, more experienced and narrow that band to maybe that probability is a 70 to 75% chance. That's how I look yeah. at it. 
I love that. I love that. I, I have to comment on the Warriors because they've been playing damn good basketball. I literally just sent out a tweet the other day. I really appreciate a team that plays like a team. Yeah. I, I have not seen an NBA team play the way the Warriors are playing forever. I mean, I'm born in 92, so I really didn't see yeah. Jordan. But yeah, I yeah. mean, the, the truth of the matter is, I mean, the Warriors are fluent in what they do. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I mean, I've lived in San Francisco since 2001. So back then, you know, the Warriors were tough. But over the past, what, seven years, the Warriors have been good. And it yeah, has been yeah. team ball. So, you know, it's funny, like before the Western and Eastern Conference finals, like the odds makers had the Warriors with the lowest percentage a chance of winning the championship it was like 10 mm. percent or less boston or miami were, were the favorites but now it's like oh the warriors are the favorite to win and we'll see right you know we'll know sooner or later i mean i would i would peg the probability right now at i would say 70 percent, 70 percent. we're up three zero against the mavericks and you know i mean celtics miami they're good i mean i hope they, they they get beat up over a six to seven game series but i think the warriors got a good chance yeah i was just watching espn literally right before this call just catching up and uh both the heat and the the celtics are beat up i think the warriors have a good chance there <laughs> i really do but I'm, I'm curious sam what's a question you wish more people would ask you pertaining to the topic of finances you know, pertaining to the topic of finances, that's I get questions all the time and everything is personal. So I guess maybe what would you have done differently? You know, what what's would the answer you have done? to that? And uh, and my answer to that is taking more risk, even more mm. risk. When you're in your 20s and 30s, you got to take max risk because you have max time to make up for your losses and learn. When you're in your 40s, I'm 45 now, two children, a wife who's an amazing stay-at-home mom and who helps with the back end, who does the back end for Financial Samurai. You know, the responsibility is on me to provide. I can't go out there and take huge risks at all because I have responsibility. When you're only responsible for yourself, you get yourself right. You understand the risk rewards. You can afford to lose money. You can afford mm -hmm. to lose time. But right now it's, it's hard to afford to lose that either of those things. And it also makes you feel really guilty when you fail, because you're not only failing yourself, you're failing your family who you love the most. Right. I think this comes full circle in a sense here because, you know, we we're kind of talking about calculated risk going back to the vacation property and in regards to taking more risk. I personally think just from conversations like this and conversations with friends and just, you know, whatever, people don't want to take risks with money because it's uncomfortable not to have money. Sure. Right. It's stressful not to have money with the demands of meeting life where life needs to be met. Rent, yeah. mortgage, car, insurance, like Ooh. food, all of that, right? <laughs> Warriors games, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what's your take in regards to dealing with the stress of yeah. finances as well? Like th that's definitely a factor. So I try to think about stress in terms of judo, where it's like a push-pull, where you use that power and you pull it to your advantage. So stress is, you know, a great motivator for change. If you're not stressed, you're, if you're always happy, go lucky, you're, you're never going to change your life. So the way I look at finances is if you're stressed about money, internalize, embrace that stress and figure out ways to make more money. Use that as an agitator for change. For me, I had to figure out how to invest enough money to generate enough passive investment income to cover my basic living expenses. And so that was the goal, right? So to achieve that goal, you know, I busted out a spreadsheet. I figured out how much money I needed and I figured out how much that would generate based on various rates of return, 1%, 2%, 3%, up to maybe 8%, right? And then I came up, okay, so at 4%, I needed $3 million. So I had to figure out how do I get to that $3 million methodically with a plan 
instead of winging it. That's the one thing that I've noticed in the past 13 years of writing on Financial Samurai is that a lot of people just wing it. They, they're just like, they, and then they wing it and they wake up 10 years later with no plan. Where's my money? Where did it all go? I mean, you've got to have a methodical plan. And the good thing about math and money is that it's really easy to calculate to get there. It's time plus returns plus savings equals your goals eventually. Do you have any resources maybe on your website or something in regards to spreadsheets? Because I remember I put together a spreadsheet to calculate my 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 spending on credit cards. Okay. I'm a really, really big credit card user, but for the purpose of building credit, right? Not to just, you know, spend freely and say, oh, I don't okay. gotta pay this for another 30 days. And then I realized that Sam, after putting it in a spreadsheet, how much money I was actually spending on my credit card. So I'm just curious, yeah. do, do you have anything resource-wise that people that yeah. are tuned into this can walk away from and say, all right, cool. Like Sam's talking about spreadsheets. He has one. Let me try this. Yeah. You know, on Financial Summer, I don't have that spreadsheet. I, sh- I should probably create one, but the, what, what I use, you know, you can use something like Mint or Personal Capital. You put the numbers in. I mean, these guys are the experts. They spend their, their whole lives creating these tools, financial tools to help you. So I just utilize them. Oh, and cool. I, I, yeah, personal capital, it's free. You just upload your data and then they'll have all these tools like the retirement planner to calculate your expenses and your projected retirement income five, 10, 15 years later. Uh, it's really helpful. You know, you want to have a vision of where you want to go and those numbers to guide you. It's like a vision board. You know, the money, you just check in on your app and you say, okay, am I making progress or am I not making progress? And then you're going to change based on what you want. Absolutely. Now, this is just coming to mind. I know that the pivotal years, or I'm sure you've had many pivotal years, but around 2008, 2007, 2009, those were really monumental years for you. I'm just curious, based off of living through that and experience what you experienced, do you see something like that coming about in our current day economy? I don't see it getting as bad as the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. And the main reason, a couple of reasons, one, lending standards since the financial crisis back then have really tightened up. Mm -hmm. So back then you had no documentation, no income loans that banks would lend to people who were not credit worthy for the amount of money they were borrowing. As a result, they were at greater risk of default. And so greater risk of more people defaulting creates a cascade downwards. So now banks have really tightened up their lending standards. They've raised their tier one capital ratio. They've raised you know, the average credit score they can lend to people. They are lending to people. They've lowered the amount they're lending to people. So if you look at consumers' balance sheets, corporate balance sheets and consumer balance sheets, they are at actually all-time highs. The equity buffer in real estate is at an all-time high. So that's kind of the main reason the lending standards have improved. And then if you look at corporates and their profitability, they have also tremendously improved. If you look at Apple, Google, I mean, they've got, you know, Apple's got hundred plus billion on their balance sheet. Their margins are great. Right. So I think we tend to learn from our mistakes and we improve. So the banks, the central banks, consumers, I hope have learned from our mistakes if we've been around long enough to experience that crisis. And I think things just get better over time. Now, in regards to combating something like inflation, is your advice as simple as just increase your income or is there something yeah. more to that? Well, so inflation is interesting. You want to own assets that inflate with inflation, right? Mm -hmm. So the underlying assets that are inflating, the most important asset is real estate. You know, if you have a place to stay, you can do a lot more affordable place to stay. So my recommendation is to try to get neutral inflation and real estate by owning your primary residence because you rise and fall with inflation. You're not really long real estate because you have to live somewhere, right? If you sell your, your property, 
then you got to buy another property or you got to rent another property. So you're really only long real estate if you own more than one property. This is another concept that I don't know if many people understand, but if you are renting, you are a price taker. You are at the mercy of inflation. So you are short real estate. It's like shorting the S&P 500. But if you look at the historical chart of the S&P 500 and the, and the real estate market, it tends to go up and to the right long-term. So think about it that way. If you're renting, yeah, there's a lot of great benefits to renting. You get a place to stay, less hassle, you're more mobile, totally fine. But eventually when you identify a place you want to live for five to 10 years, you want to get neutral real estate by owning your primary residence. So inflation, when it comes out at eight and a half percent in 2022, you're not getting crushed by it. You're actually just, you don't even think about it because your housing costs are stable, right? And then there's other things, you know, that like healthcare. If you have a job, great. Inflation is not going to kill you as much. Education. If you don't have kids, it's okay. If you're not going to college, it's okay. But people like me actually are hitting, getting hit by inflation the most. I've got young kids and I don't have a day job, so I, don't, I can't get no raise. But yes, for those of you who have day jobs, take advantage of the hot labor market by asking for a raise or finding another job every two to three years because you reset your market value every time you job hub. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I saw something interesting and I'm going to botch this a little bit because I didn't, I can't quote it for verbatim, but when it comes to getting into real estate, I think there are individuals that are intimidated by that. And here's why. I saw a stat this morning, literally just this morning while scrolling on Instagram. And it was a post that said something along the lines of income during the Great Depression to in comparison to buying a house was like 15% greater than what it is today. And obviously that could be, you know, accredited to the fact that homes are much more expensive. I mean, I live in Queens, New York and a yeah. freaking home where I live is 800,000 minimum, right? So yeah. Yeah. when people see stuff like that, they get intimidated. What's your take there? Well, yeah, you know, home prices are expensive, but it all depends. It's all relative to your income. And right. so I have a home buying rule. It's called the 30-30-3 home buying rule. And we can focus on the three, which is really not a three now. It's more like a three to five. So the three to five basically is the, the home you can buy is equal to three to five times your gross annual income. Okay. That is kind of the affordability range. And the reason why it expanded to five is because rates have come down over the past 40 years and it's more affordable to buy a home because rates have come down. So if you make $150,000, let's say $200,000, you can afford a $600,000 to $1 million home. And that's basically, it's a function of rates and affordability and it's also a function of what banks will lend you. Banks will lend you about up to 30% of your gross income in terms of mortgage payments. So if, you're, if the mortgage payments equals 30% of your gross income, actually banks lend more, but about 30%, you're good to go. So that's another framework to think about. Now, don't be afraid of the numbers, just look at the ratios. So if you want to buy a $600,000 or $800,000 home in Queens, you know, you're going to have to try to figure out how to make you know, three, 200 to $300,000, right? 150, yeah. 200. And, and that's what, that, that's the purpose of Financial Samurai and the book is to help give people the courage and the understanding to make proper investment decisions. It's not just, you know, a lot of, if you think about the media, they'll throw out these numbers like, oh, it's so expensive in New York or San Francisco. It's like housing prices are crazy, but yet they leave out a key variable, which is income, right? Mm. If your income is, you know, a third the cost of the property, then it's actually quite affordable. And so you always got to look at both sides. Now, if someone hears the 30, 30, three to five rule that you have in place and like, you know what, I'm not there yet. What are yeah. other ways for them to get into real estate? Are you a fan of them, you know, using real estate funds or, you know, I have an app, I, I use Fundrise all the time, you know, yeah. are, is that, is that another way that you would advise? Yeah. I mean, I like Fundrise as well. They dominantly focus on investing in single family homes in the Sunbelt. 
which I think is very wise. And I think that's a long-term positive trend due to demographic changes and also due to technology allowing people, enabling people to work from home. So if you cannot afford that 20% down payment on that house, which most people can't afford for the first 10 years of their lives, because the median first-time home buying age is around 32, you want to capital allocate towards, you can capital allocate towards real estate, such as, you know, a real estate ETF, index, a real estate index fund from Vanguard, for example. You can invest in private real estate through Fundrise, where, you know, it's only a $10 minimum now, and you can just build your exposure there. Because again, you want to ride the inflation wave. You want to ride real estate up and down because because if real estate is going up and you're not long real estate, it's just going to take more and more money for you to buy your property eventually, right? So you want to try to, it's all about asset allocation exposure based on what you want. So if you want a home in five years, you should probably allocate some of your capital towards real estate so you can ride it so that by the time you know you get to that point where you have 20% down payment, it's more affordable. And so hopefully your income, your savings and all that will outpace inflation and outpace the rise in homes. But the problem since 2020 is that home prices, you know, minimum home prices are up double digits for two years in a row. So that's been a real problem for those who want to buy homes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to make sure that we're getting to the book here. I, I see that I've been talking to you for about a half hour now, and I, I could continue asking you questions, but I want to make sure we're fitting the book in. Buy this, not that. First question off the bat is, why this title? I think it's a great title because it's simple and it helps encapsulate a lot of our lives. We always have choices to make, whether it's dating this girl or dating that girl, going to private school or public school, getting married or not, starting a podcast or not. I mean, life is full of decisions. And the thing is, there's so many decisions that it causes people to just constrict and end up doing nothing. And when you do nothing, nothing happens, right? And so my course of action has always been to try to do something, something, you know, hopefully they're more good than bad decisions, but over time, you know, that something becomes really, really wonderful. And I've, and I've lived through, you know, going to college, working at a top investment bank, starting Financial Samurai, and I've made all these choices and I've made all these mistakes. And I'm really trying to identify some of the biggest dilemmas in all of our lives and not just talk about money and building financial freedom and wealth for money's sake, but to utilize that money to make better decisions so we can have better lives. That's the point of money, to live better lives as a tool, right? Not as the end-all be-all, because if you strip away money, you end up with purpose of what you're doing. Mm. And if your purpose was to just make money and you strip away uh, money in a bear market, then you're going to feel really empty inside. Absolutely. Now, if someone picks up this book and they could only take one thing away from it, what would you want that one thing to be? That one thing would be to think in probabilities, not absolutes. What does that mean? So that means that you should never think it's only my way or the highway. There's only one way to do things, or you have to have 100% certain to make a decision. Think in probabilities where it's like, okay, 70%, 80% chance this could happen and turn out great. 20 to 30% chance it's not going to turn out great, but what's the worst that could happen? And what are some things I can learn from it to make better decisions going forward? How do you adopt that mindset more specifically so when the world is demanding you to make decisions quick? quicker and quicker and quicker. I mean, listen, I living in a big city like San Francisco or New York City, like everything yeah. is like this. So how do you adopt that mindset or at least build the muscle of that mindset to run through those scenarios in a more in a quicker fashion? No, I don't know if we need to make them quicker. I mean, the thing is you need time to think and analyze, sleep over things, run your spreadsheet, talk to your friends. I don't see that big of a rush. There's nothing really that's so in a hurry that you have to make what, let's say, I don't know, 
a job offer, they're not going to say, you tell me the, tell me yes or no. Now they're going to say, well, you know, we'll give you a week. So right. it's actually really about slowing down and recognizing you don't have to make decisions quickly. The more important decision you have to make, the more you need to analyze, discuss with your trusted advisors and friends mm. and make people, you know, if they really want you to make a decision, they find you to be important to make them wait for you to make that proper decision. Don't make decisions based on what society wants you. Make society conform to you and take your time. Don't rush because rushing is actually what can really screw you up in the long term. Absolutely. Especially when it comes to money, because I've, I've been there many times over, many, many times, whether that be with stocks, whether that be with impulse yeah. purchases and all yeah, of that. FOMO. You're like, I got to buy the next cryptocurrency. My friends are making money. Yep. Buy, 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 blow yourself up. You know, there's this, you know, pot property. It's my dream house. I'm going to go leverage up at the top of the market. I don't I mean, you will you will hurt yourself more often if you rush into financial decisions quickly. So yeah. it's not just analyzing the bare case scenario, the realistic scenario, and the blue sky scenario yourself, but it's also pitching those scenarios to trusted advisors, friends, and family and hearing their perspectives. And so that's one of the powerful reasons for Financial Samurai is, you know, I, I submit a thesis, I argue my thesis, and then I have people who have experienced that have hurt themselves or made the right choice, comment on their perspectives. And then we formulate a well-rounded perspective. And that's what I've done with By This, Not That. You know, Over 90 million people have come to Financial Samurai since 2009. I've heard from everyone from all walks of life. And I've really synthesized their perspectives to try to make the best, help readers make the best decision possible from the book. Now, in regards to the community that you've been able to foster over the years, I'm just curious, what do you feel like is the main top three, quote unquote, problems or whatever that people bring to the table when you know asking you questions? I think a lot of people have a problem starting. Like, how do you start building passive income? How do you start? So that's one. The other is what to do with my money once it's being built. You know, is my life just only about making money. Mm. And the other thing is like, what's next? There's like a common theme of what's next. Once you've understood the financial concept, once you've saved, you've invested, you've built passive income, what's next in life? Like a lot of people have this self-actualization wonder, you know, once they've got their money right, what's the next challenge? You know, whether it's relationships, whether it's giving back, whether it's creating a new product to birth to the world, to help the world. It's a never ending journey, which is why it's so fun. Absolutely. So when it comes to, I guess maybe we've talked about this, but let's go through that list in regards to passive income, where do people start in its most simplest form? Well, the most simplest form is just buying an S&P 500 ETF or index fund, right? So the S&P 500 is 500 of the top stocks in the United States. It generally provides a dividend yield. Right now, it's probably around one point. It's generally between one and a half to 2%. And that's the easiest way to go. But if you think about one and a half to 2%, that's not a high rate, right? So you need a lot of capital to generate a lot of passive income. So, you know, it's really stocks, bonds, real estate. These are the core asset classes that generate the most reliable, steady, and highest amount of passive income. So you go from there, stocks, bonds, real estate. For me, about 50% of my net worth, if I exclude my online businesses in real estate, and the reason why I like real estate more is because the yields are higher. You can mm. do things as the majority owner, the main owner to remodel, to expand. You can basically try to get better deals. Whereas, you know, stock is just, it's the price it is, right? But as a real estate investor, you can try to haggle and get better deals. And so I like real estate because I like to be in control and I feel there's more upside. But for stocks, as I get older, stocks are 
looking more and more attractive because they're completely passive. But the problem with stocks is that, you know, you can be riding high one day and the next day, poof, you lose 30 to 50% because the company manager missed quarter, you know, something happened, exogenous variable, you don't have any control. So you're a passive rider. So I've got about 25 to 30% of my net worth in public stocks. And then I've got about 10 plus percent in private investments. Awesome. Now you said the second biggest problem that people came to you with was after they start their journey, they have passive income generating. They kind of feel like their life revolves just around money. What happens then? Like, what do you, what do you suggest for people to do when they are at that stage in case there is a listener here that says, all right, I already have real estate investments. I already have stocks. I have my Roth IRA since I'm 17 years old. If they're at that point, what's your advice to them? Is it to maybe reevaluate goals or, you know, reevaluate the plan that you're putting in place? You know, you have to talk to your friend or your loved one, strip away the money, strip away all that financial success and ask them and talk to them, you know, what do you think I'm good at? What do you think I'm here for? What do you think my purpose is? Mm -hmm. What is it you think that lights me up? You see me smile and be happy and get all pumped and excited about every single time I talk about that something, right? Because it's really hard to know exactly who you are and what you are without getting perspective from someone else. You know, you might think you're like the nicest person, but if you talk to five people, maybe three of them think, you know, you're really curt asshole, right? And that's something that I've tried to overcome myself. You know, I, I know my weaknesses, you know, I need to work on my patience. I need to work on empathy. I need to work on just so many things. And I need people who I trust to tell me, you know, you need to work on that, buddy, or else you're not doing something. So it's the same thing with your purpose. Because at the end of the day, you want to, you know, if you ever, you know, watch the movie Inception, there's the, there's the old man. He doesn't want to be an old man, full of regret, dying alone. Right. You don't want to be that, right? You want to try to Think to the future 20, 30 years from now and make sure you have no regrets that you tried everything you wanted to try. You wanted to do everything you wanted to do because the only person you're going to let down is yourself. Absolutely. So, I mean, we could sum this up specifically what we're discussing here. I mean, money's a vehicle, right? And this goes back to what you said earlier, right? Money's a vehicle to be able to buy you time to do what it is that you do love in life. It sounds like that's what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. I love Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, it's I have regular friends who have got very wealthy friends. We actually all have the same desires to do something purposeful, to feel love, to provide some values to society. And if you have children to be a good parent, I mean, it's really simple and it goes across all financial spectrums. I love that. I love that. That's powerful. I'm curious, what's a piece of advice that you didn't want to hear, but proved to be true over time? I think you don't know what you don't know, you know? So like, mm. I think a teenager, 20s, you're cocky, you think you know everything, you know, you're bulletproof, you can't, you can't lose, you can't miss. And then, you know, for me, like in my thirties, you know, blow my limbs off left and right of the financial crisis. And it's really humbling. And so um, my key is to try to stay humble, you know, no matter how much I make or whatever, you know, if the book becomes a bestseller, just stay humble because if you live long enough, good and bad things will happen to you. And so you take the good in stride and you're aware that, you know what, after years of good luck, something bad's going to happen and you want to just stay humble, stay humble. I'm, I'm curious, what was the life moment for you that, because obviously the Sam we're meeting today is a totally different person. You know, you're saying that in your 20s, and 30s, you know, you didn't know what you didn't know. You didn't want to hear that. But now you're also talking about having friends and a partner that you surround yourself with where you do get that feedback. So what was the switch for you? Was it a specific life moment? Maybe a person? What, what was it? You know, I had a, a good friend when I was 13 who passed away from a car accident. And it was a lot of survivor's guilt because I had called him actually to ask for my money back because I had lent him some money. This was in Malaysia. And I had gone away for summer vacation. And I, I, I still remember like 
I picked up the phone. I said, Hey, is Mark around? And his mother picked up and he said, passed away. And that was really just think about it as a 13 year old boy, your, your good friend, you thought you were just going to meet up with after call, uh, after summer vacation, just gone. And so I think that was the start of just trying to not take things too many things for granted. I lived in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. We were US foreign service officers, but I saw poverty and wealth all around me. It was really, man, it was tough. So at very young age, I just, I saw that dichotomy. So I didn't want to take things for granted. So as I got older, as an adult, I think it was, well, you know, it was like 9-11. So I, were, I lived at 45 Wall Street, which was a couple blocks away from the Twin Towers. In January of that year, when the towers went down, I had been at a conference at the top. It was like Windows of the World Latin America Goldman Sachs Conference. And that was another moment where I was like, wow, that's crazy. And that's so horrific and sad. And I, was, I can't waste my life like that. And that was, I mean, I don't know, I was 24, 24 at the time. And so that was a really impressionable moment as well. And then the global financial crisis just, you know, I'd struggled and saved for all that time. And then I just, boom, lost so much wealth. And so I think it's more like, it's not just one moment, it's just many moments where you just have to realize your luck and you have to just accept your losses. And then you just got to move forward and keep on changing. Now, do you think that we need to experience those really deep moments, for instance, like 9-11, you know, knock on wood, you know, you're safe, but a lot of people lost their life, right? Do, yeah. do we need to experience those moments to understand that we do have purpose? And the reason I ask is because I found daily signs to give myself reason that I have purpose for being here. So for instance, whenever I look at the clock, it just so happens that I'll see like a synchronistic time. It might say 11-11 or 4 and I'm yeah. like, holy shit, like that's yeah, just yeah, a yeah. sign. Like, hey, I'm in the right place at the right time. Or right. I also look at the name that I was given by my parents. Matthew means God's gift in Christianity. So I'm just curious, like, do you think that we need to be able to, or do you think that we need to experience those really, really like life shaking moments to understand that we have a purpose? I think we do. I think vacation is no fun without work. Work is not as purposeful without vacation. You don't, you don't fully appreciate. You can say you appreciate something, but you don't really free, fully appreciate until you have that loss. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I got in trouble in high school. I was you know, a rascal kid. And so, man, getting in trouble really made me appreciate getting into college. And then, you know, 9-11 really made me appreciate having a job and having life and then, you know, having family really, it's just, it just, the, you have to experience the downs to fully appreciate the highs. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the roller coaster of life to say the least, uh, but being able to surf both of those waves is very, very important. But Sam, I want to ask you this question here to, to wrap this up for everyone. I mean, look at my notebook, just, just for the sake of it. I have notes all <laughs> through these pages. All right. I'm curious, you know, if, you live to whatever year you want to live to. You amass all the wealth that you could even imagine. You know, you write more books, you hop on more podcasts, you do everything you want to do, but yeah. you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. What would you want that one piece of advice to be? It has to, it has to be more than one piece of advice. So, I mean, first, first is to be that I was a good father, mm. um, that I purposefully decided to not have a full-time day job and to plan my life so that I could be a present father, spend as much time with him as possible because I don't want my son or daughter to be 25 years old and say, you know, my dad was never around. That's really, really important to me. I think honestly, personally, selfishly, that that's it, to be a good father. And the second thing is to be someone who gave first and didn't ask for anything in return, who tried to help, who tried to help and to try to give you perspective. You know, the world is really just messy. It's kind of ugly. There's a lot of combat. I've been through that as well. And it's just, it's, I just, I just, 
want there to be more harmony. And I just think about my kids all the time. Yeah, I love that. Now, Sam, I'm going to have all websites, socials, where people can get the book in the show notes of this episode. But do you have anything else going on that we should make people aware of? You know, that's it. I, it took two years during the pandemic to write this book, you know, 2020, 2021, 2022, more than two years, read, you know, record the audio as well. But I'm just really focused on the book. And it's almost like birthing another child. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're too old to have the third kid, but I, I'm not too old to birth another book child. And I think after, man, after August, I got to take it easy, man. It's just, it's been so hard. I mean, you know, it's one thing to, you know, grind it out during the pandemic at home and all that. It's another thing to grind it out and manage two kids and make sure that they're safe. It's it's crazy amount of work. So shout out to all the parents out there who've had to manage that for the past two, two and a half years. So what's next? I'm just going to chill, chill. You know, I'll still write on financialsamurai.com. Maybe I'll do some uh, book tour in New York, uh, Honolulu, San Francisco, all the places that I want to be and I have family and, and just kind of enjoy the moment. People have told me regretfully that they didn't enjoy the moment when they were creating something mm. special, whether it was a book or whatever, and to just enjoy the moment and to try to not take things too seriously, to try to just to soak it in because everything is ephemeral. You know, one day I'll look back and I'll be like, ah, you shouldn't have taken yourself too seriously. You should have just enjoyed it. I love that. Sam, I appreciate you, man. This was absolutely incredible. Your body of work is incredible. So kudos to you for all that you put out there. You know, you, you mentioned that you want to be remembered for giving and asking for nothing in return. You definitely did that here. So I just wanted to say thank you and definitely grateful for this opportunity. Oh, thanks, man. And keep on doing what you're doing. It's uh, it's awesome. I've, I've listened to many, many of your podcasts, sending my son to and from school. So it's been great. Appreciate that. All right, everyone, you just tuned into the Decoding Success podcast featuring our friend, the financial samurai himself, Sam Dogan. To that point, Sam, shout out to you for allowing us to amplify your message, to allow us to make an impact collaboratively with you right here on our community of listeners. So with that being said, I'm going to urge each and every one of you that's tuned into this right now to make sure you're sharing it with the people in your life because we discussed hacks on saving, investing, tools, mistakes landmines to avoid. The list goes on. There is just so much in this episode. There is definitely someone in your life that could use the information within this episode. And there is a reason you're listening to it, whether that be for yourself or whether that be because you know someone that needs to hear what was said in this episode, make sure that you're sharing this. If you do so, if you want to share it on your Instagram, wherever, make sure that you tag us, let us know, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, all of that is good too. Or if you're just sending it via text message, whatever it may be, urging you to be that beacon of light for someone that definitely needs it in your life. Shout out to Sam, shout out to each and every one of you for tuning into this. We will be back next Wednesday with some exciting stuff. Until then, be blessed. Peace.